0: This evening in your Bible's congregation, we would invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9 in your pew Bible. You can find that on page 1379. And then also after we read from the Word of God, we'll be reading from the Belgic Confession article 25. And in your Forms and Prayers book, you can find that on page 180. So we read tonight from Hebrews 9, and then after the reading of Scripture, what we believe a faithful summary of Scripture, the Belgic Confession, uh, more specifically Article 25. Here now the reading of the Word of God. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, and which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time, in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerning concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sacrifices for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator, For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year, with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Thus far this evening, our reading from the Word of God, we then turn to Article 25 of the Belgian Confession entitled, The Fulfillment of the Law. And it states, we believe that the ceremonies and symbols of the law have ended with the coming of Christ, and that all foreshadowings have come to an end, so that the use of them ought to be abolished among Christians. Yet the truth and substance of these things remain for us in Jesus Christ, in whom they have been fulfilled. Nevertheless, we continue to use the witnesses drawn from the Law and Prophets to confirm us in the Gospel and to regulate our lives with full integrity for the glory of God according to His will." Our congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, at first reading uh, this article of the Belgian Confession might strike us as an odd article kind of tucked in, so to speak, right in the the middle of the exposition of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, there suddenly comes this article that deals with the relevancy of the Old Testament. But I would submit to you by way of introduction this evening that this is a most important topic. Uh, And for evidence for that point, I would submit to you also uh, the failure to fully appreciate uh, the testimony of the Old Testament uh, that many a heretic has had. Uh, those of you familiar with church history might remember the name of uh, an individual known as Marcion. Uh, Marcion uh, made one dreadful mistake, and that is, uh, practically speaking, he tore his Bible in half. And he did away with the entirety of the Old Testament, but he didn't stop just there. He also did away with many parts of the New Testament. Uh, Marcion is not the only individual Uh, to ever have fallen prey to this type of uh, an imbalanced and unbiblical teaching. And and so, again, I've said this in numerous times, the goal for the sermon, and when we say that we have a goal for a sermon, we acknowledge our dependency, of course, upon the Holy Spirit to ever accomplish anything from the pulpit ministry. Uh, But our goal tonight would be that we would avoid a a Marcion type of a heresy. Uh, To put it in a positive way, our goal is that we as a congregation might might know how to use our Bibles. And, And especially for the young people that they might know how to use their Bibles, specifically the Old Testament. And so questions might arise, is the Old Testament still relevant? Is the Old Testament practical? Does the Old Testament say the same thing as the New Testament? Is there one gospel? is there one God? Is the Old Testament God the same God as the New Testament God? We only raise these questions because at times individuals have given wrong answers to those questions. We say absolutely there is one God. And the God who reveals Himself in the Old Testament is the same God as the God revealing Himself in the New Testament. And we say absolutely there is only one Gospel. And so whether you read from Genesis or Leviticus, or whether you read uh, in one of the poetical books, the book of Psalm, or whether it be in a major prophet or a minor prophet, it all points forward to one gospel centered in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And so we want to consider this evening for our own spiritual edification, as well as for the glory of our God, our belief concerning the law. Now, just a word about that theme. Typically, Reformed theology speaks about the law of God and makes a threefold distinction within the law of God. And if you're keeping notes, this might be worth jotting down. First of all, we speak about the moral law of God, especially as that moral law is revealed in and through Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, the Ten Commandments. Now, this moral law of God is perpetual in its duration. It applies to all persons at all times, and that's symbolized by it being written on tablets of stone and being placed there in the Ark of the Covenant. When we speak tonight about our belief concerning the law, we are not referring to that aspect of God's law. There were two other common distinctions that are made. One is of the ceremonial law, By ceremonial law, uh, we have in mind all of those ordinances and all of those elements that were divinely instituted in the days of the Old Testament, especially as those practices and those elements found themselves contained uh, in the temple. That's why we've chosen to read from Hebrews chapter 9. It talks here about the first covenant had these ordinances uh, in verse 1 of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. And so you can read through, especially, for example, uh, the book of Leviticus and all of these practices that were connected to the life of the covenant people of Israel. Uh, That's what we refer to as the ceremonial law. But there was also the third aspect of the civil law. Uh, Israel in the Old Testament was what we call a theocracy. After having been led out of Egypt, they were established as a nation directly underneath Uh, the rule of god so that through the various offices the kings the priests, and the prophets god directly ruled over the life of this nation of this theocracy Uh, and so there were the institution of all types of civil laws with punishments and so for example there was the forbidding of the moving uh, of the the mark uh, on the land of wherever the lot was fallen to you there was also of course the forbidding for example, of adultery, along with the giving of a, of a sentence for the execution of one who was caught in adultery. Now, the ceremonial and the civil laws have been realized, you might say, uh, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the civil law does not strictly apply, although its principles may apply. And Jesus Christ himself shows this when he addresses those who caught the woman in adultery. Uh, he did not pick up a stone to stone her, In fact, he says to those who brought her to him, whomever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And when all of those self-righteous religious leaders had dropped their stones and had slinked off into the darkness of uh, their own forgetfulness, the Lord Jesus Christ said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But we deal especially tonight with that second aspect of the law, the ceremonial law. And I can remember growing up, uh, my father, we, we read through the Bible, uh, one chapter uh, a night, it was like clockwork. We'd start Genesis 1, we'd read all the way through to Revelation 22, and then we'd go right back to Genesis 1. And you'd read through some of those passages, maybe in Deuteronomy, maybe in Leviticus, and you wondered, what, what does it all mean? And perhaps as a child I thought, why all the blood? because it seemed in the book of Leviticus especially that there was this constant theme of the shedding of blood. Well, we hope to unfold that this evening as we consider our theme again in connection especially to the second aspect of the law of God, the ceremonial law. The law reveals, first of all, the holiness of God. And then we'll note second that the law points to the work of Jesus, and then third, the law guides Jesus in the life of the Christian. So, our belief concerning the law, it reveals the holiness of God, it points to the work of Jesus, and it guides in the life of the Christian. So, again, when we talk about the the law of God, we refer to the ceremonial law, and I hope as you read and as you think about what we read in Hebrews 9, you see that the author of the Hebrews is pointing his readers upon all of these rituals, all of these ceremonious practices that were prescribed by God in the Old Testament dispensation. And all of these activities focused upon the revelation of the holiness of God. As God gave these to Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, and as God, by giving them to Moses, as God describes all of this ritual activity that Israel is to engage in, he's revealing by it this basic truth that you and I need to know, and I hope we as a congregation will emphasize, and that is... The one true God of heaven and of earth is an infinitely holy God. When you read through, for example, again, the book of Leviticus, when you read through one of the prophets, whether it be a minor prophet or a major prophet, when you read through uh, the Psalter, this common emphatic theme sounds again and again where the Lord in essence is saying to his people, I am the Lord God and I am a holy God. But what does that mean that God is holy? Well, holy refers to being set apart. And so, very simply, boys and girls and young people, God is set apart from everything else that exists. And we need to understand and to appreciate the distinction that there is between God alone, who is infinite and immortal. And all that He has called into existence, including we ourselves. Now, we ourselves, we bear the image of God. But there is this shift, you might say. There is this distinction between God and everything else. And and I only labor to emphasize this because living in our day and in our culture, our Western world wants to minimize that, that division, wants to minimize that distinction. And so there there are the common, the increasingly common teachings of pantheism and panentheism that God is everywhere or that everything is God or a God. It's a lie, it's a diabolical lie. God is God. And only God is God. And this is communicated with his attribute of holiness. God is infinitely majestic, transcendent, and separate from us. We must always bear in mind the truth of Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood Seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That needs to be a refrain that reverberates and echoes in our mind and in our heart and in our soul as individuals and as a congregation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And especially when we gather ourselves together for corporate worship, holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God of hosts. Do we seek a motivating factor to gather ourselves together for corporate worship? Holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts. Not only His infinite majesty, but also His moral purity. God is absolute and perfectly pure. Habakkuk 1 verse 13 expresses it this way, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil. And you cannot look on wickedness. So when you read of the temple, and of the holy of holies, and of the vow, and of the ark of the covenant, uh, and of the angels that look down, and of the mercy seat, and of the high priest once a year entering in with blood, sprinkling that blood upon the mercy seat, think holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, infinitely majestic and of absolute moral purity. And by revealing the holiness of God, uh, the ceremonial law also revealed the sinfulness of man. Uh, To quote one author, all of the ceremonies and symbols of the law served to reveal the sinfulness of man in light of and in contrast to the holiness of God. The sinfulness of man is, you might say, something that is automatically clear when we understand the holiness of God. And that's why in the close proximity to the temple and in the close proximity there to the Holy of Holies was the water and the blood, the water necessary to cleanse and the blood necessary to make atonement. And there was no proper way for the priest, and the priest in their functions in the Old Testament, that they, they represented the covenant people of God. There was no proper way for that priest to come into the temple and to enter into the holiest of holies and to be in the immediate presence of God without water and without blood. If they would have tried to enter into the holiest of holies without water and without blood. The holiness of God would have consumed them in a mere instant. And so there was this need for cleansing, and there was the need for the priest. Uh, And Hebrews 9, verse 7 uh, and verse 10 points this out. But into the second part, in verse 7, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood. Now, boys and girls, and maybe young people also, maybe all of us, you admit sometimes we're prone to forget things. Sometimes we're, we're prone to maybe leave. Uh, we jump in the car, and, and we, we forget if you're a lady, maybe you forget your purse. Uh, you fellows, maybe you forget your wallet. Maybe you forget your phone somewhere. Maybe you forget to turn off the lights. Maybe, boys and girls, you forget to put your shoes away or, or to hang up your backpack at the end of the school day. These priests never forgot the need for blood when they entered into the holy of holies. Because there was this consistent message, God is holy and man is sinful. Notice also uh, that there is then verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. And so all of this in the Old Testament, it all pointed forward to something that was going to come at a future time. And that ties in with our transition into our second point. If we understand the holiness of God and our own sinfulness, then we understand the need for the work of Jesus. And so the ceremonial law points to the work of Jesus. And so our author of the Belgian Confession rightly says that all of the ceremonies and all of the symbols of the law, all that the priests did, and all of the furniture or the furnishings of the temple, indeed the temple itself, it all pointed forward. It was a foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ would do. And so since the logic, you can say, the logic is this way, since Jesus Christ has now come... Every ritual, every ceremony, every piece of furniture in the temple, it all is gone. It's all done. It's all fulfilled its purpose as something that foreshadowed the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, But still we can look back and we can read these passages that talked about what Jesus Christ was going to do and we can glean instruction from them. And so you'll notice that these Old Testament ceremonies and symbols, they pointed forward to the work of Christ, the work that Christ would accomplish with His blood. Uh, notice verses 12 through 14 of our text in Hebrews 9, speaking about the Old Testament priest, but then as that work has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ as the high priest, that there makes this distinction. Jesus Christ came, verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, But with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled the unclean, sacrifices for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And all of this points forward to what we call the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ because and we can never forget this truth as it stated in verse 22 without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins you see that that's the great dilemma of humanity the great dilemma of humanity is God is infinitely holy, and I am a sinner. How can those two be reconciled? The answer, only through the shedding of blood. Only through the shedding of the blood of a propitiatory sacrifice. And that's the message that the Old Testament, if we can say it this way respectfully, cried out for hundreds of years. For hundreds of years, the Old Testament said, there is a place in which the holy God will meet with sinful men and women and children. And that place is in the holiest of holies. But that place must be entered into with blood, with sacrificial blood for redemption. And so all of these Old Testament ceremonies and symbols, they point forward to the work of Jesus Christ and His blood that was shed for redemption. Uh, here we just drop down, you might say, uh, into verse 15. And for this reason, He, speaking again about Jesus Christ, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of of the eternal inheritance. Redemption has this idea of liberating from bondage, liberating in this context, of course, from the spiritual bondage of sinfulness and of the guilt of sin And so all of these washings and all of these sacrificial systems that were put in place in the Old Testament dispensation, it pointed forward to this accomplishment of redemption. That is that there was a way in which the power of sin could be broken and the penalty of sin could be dealt with, but that way was only through, again, a sacrificial atoning death. And you see this is the constant refrain all throughout the Old Testament, whether you begin with Adam and Eve and there, the clothing of Adam and Eve and the hiding of their nakedness by the shedding of blood to provide the skins of animals. Or whether it be as you continue on uh, with the patriarchs, but especially as it then comes to expression underneath what we call uh, the Mosaic administration of the covenant. As there this elaborate ritual is given, and the culminating point of the elaborate ritual of the atoning sacrificial system of the Old Testament was the Day of Atonement, a day that came once within a year, a day in which the high priest entered into this holiest of holies, the inner sanctuary of the temple. But he entered in with blood, the blood of a lamb, And now you can see how this all ties in, because when John the Baptist is preaching there in the wilderness, and as he sees Jesus Christ coming, what does he proclaim about Jesus Christ? Does he say, now here is a wise rabbi? Now here is a moral example? Well, here is someone who can show what it is to live and die for a noble cause. Well, here is someone who can right all of the wrongs of human society and help us achieve our best life now. Nothing of that. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does he take away the sin of the world? With his blood. Because apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins but thanks be to God, you can then infer, and of course this is supported by so many other passages, with the shedding of blood, with the shedding of the blood of Emmanuel, with the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, then there is remission of sins. And all of this is the clear message of the Old Testament ceremonial law as it points to the work of Jesus Christ. In addition, in our third point, the ceremonial law guides the life of the Christian, and it guides the life of the Christian by confirming the gospel and by regulating one's life. we can be brief when we refer here to the confirming of the gospel. Now, the actions, the ceremonies, the furniture, we can call it, of the temple, their use has been accomplished But they still speak. They speak through the pages of Scripture. I tell you it was a number of years ago, but my wife and I had the opportunity to travel uh, to Israel and and to travel to Jerusalem. And uh, as we were being led about by a Jewish uh, guide, a remarkable man, a man who knew his Old Testament backwards and forwards, at least to a certain extent, he could quote verse after verse, he showed us where some of his countrymen, his fellow Jews, were collecting furniture for what they hoped would be the rebuilding of the temple. I thought about that, and, and they were so excited to build a new candle that would go in there. And I will never forget his, his face lit up with excitement when he told us that they thought, they thought maybe they had found the Ark of the Covenant. And I paraphrase, it was down some tunnel underneath the city streets of Jerusalem, and it was in a certain part that they couldn't get to yet, but they had taken some type of robotic camera, and they had looked around a corner, and they saw an object there, and they thought maybe this was the Ark of the Covenant. And so they viewed this as another step towards the rebuilding of the temple. And he said to me, you you know, if we find the Ark of the Covenant, maybe we can begin the sacrificial system again. And I thought, what foolishness. Why would you ever want to begin that sacrificial system again? Jesus Christ has accomplished it all. I say the man knew his old testament but yet really he didn't sure he could quote the minor prophets and the major prophets he showed me his hebrew bible well well worn he could quote way more passages than i ever could but he didn't understand the gospel the simple sacrificial work of the lord jesus christ You perhaps think of two travelers on a road who also knew the Old Testament. At least they thought they did. They were going to a city of Emmaus just after the Lord Jesus Christ had been crucified, but then also risen. And as they walked and as they talked, a stranger to them came alongside of them and asked what they were talking about. And in essence, they said, well, don't you know Jesus has been crucified, and we thought He was the Messiah. And do you remember what the text says? And Jesus, going back to the Old Testament, began to expound all of the things concerning Himself. And so here's just a basic hermeneutical clue, and by hermeneutics we mean the, the rules for understanding of the Scriptures. If you read an Old Testament passage... And If you don't see Jesus Christ, you have misread the passage. If if you're reading through a a prophecy in the Old Testament, or one of the Psalms, or, or perhaps a historic book, and you don't see the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, pray for illumination and go back and read it again, because it all points forward to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why the Christian church says, certainly we can read, we ought to read, we must read the entirety of the Bible because it all points forward to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it confirms that one gospel, the one accomplishment of the gospel, as well as the one application of the gospel. And the Old Testament also proclaims to us that there is a way of forgiveness, and that way of forgiveness is the shedding of blood of the great high priest Jesus Christ. And understanding that and embracing that and receiving that by faith, uh, the Old Testament along with the New Testament it is profitable as it guides the life of the Christian uh, by regulating our life. Now here again we need to be careful, as, as we said before, the civil law of the Old Testament reveals perpetually binding principles uh, but the exact punishment that the Old Testament describes underneath the theocracy is not always applicable to our situation. And Jesus Christ, as we referred to earlier, shows the reality of that. But if you look at all of the civil laws, as they tie into the principles of the moral law, the law of God calls for the people of God to live lives of holiness, If you had to summarize what does the law require, of course you could go to what the Lord Jesus Christ said. But if you look at what Jesus Christ said, the essence of the law is love. Love towards God and love towards one's fellow man. And every commandment that is underneath the civil law in the Old Testament is basically an elaboration of how we are to love. And so you're not supposed to move, you know, the field marker of your neighbor's field uh, 10 feet further to your advantage because you love him as your fellow man. Uh, and you're not supposed to run off with your neighbor's wife because you love him as your fellow man. Uh, and you're not supposed to run off with your, from your wife because you love her. And so all of these applications are just simply expressions of how you are to love. And you see, that is what the Old Testament law says. We are the people of God. Having been washed, having been forgiven, having been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called in to love, to love God above all, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And this also is then the testimony of the law in its Old Testament context, So reading the law, we see the work of Christ, and we also see then our appropriate response to the work of Christ. And so we ought to be motivated to faith and love. That is the heartbeat of the Christian life. May that be the heartbeat of Covenant Reformed Church. Faith in Jesus Christ, love toward God, and love towards our fellow men. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we, we humbly ask one simple thing this evening. Teach us how to read our Bibles with spiritual insight to see the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, to acknowledge Your infinite and holiness, to humble ourselves in light of our sinfulness, and to see the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask for a blessing to that end. For Jesus' sake, amen.